Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi everyone and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today as I speak with wonderful guests from all over the world. So I wanted to start off by saying welcome to 2020. 2019 was an absolutely incredible year. Just a few days ago I was reflecting as I put up some pictures in my Instagram stories and looking through all the photos that I've collected over the year really brought back some incredible memories and of course like so many other people it wasn't a utopian year um, certainly there were lots of challenges um, and some loss and some really difficult uh, moments days times um, so I'm certainly not going to gloss over that um, but on the whole I feel extremely grateful that unlike some other years 2019 was an unusually excellent one in so many ways most notably because I got to connect with um, either reconnecting or meeting for the first time so many incredible people from all over the world um, you may be aware that I traveled to the US a couple of times first of all at the start of the year to be a attending and speaking at the International Eating Disorders Conference in New York, where I got to hang out with so many amazing health at every size dietitians and colleagues and therapists. It was just, oh my gosh, that was a really, um, truly amazing time. Uh, I also got to uh, present a couple of workshops. Um, this one was the bringing presence to Tough Conversations workshop, which I ran in New York City and then in San Diego, which is a city that I'd never been to before. And, and again, just, you know, connecting and reconnecting with people, um, you know, who are doing this really brave work in, in uh, weight-inclusive practice. Uh, later on in the year, I, I collaborated with Hayley Goodrich from Inspired Nutrition and Inspired to Seek, and we brought our non-diet approach principles, practice and purpose uh, workshops to, to three three different cities. So the first was Houston and then Toronto and then Washington DC in collaboration with the WIND conference, which was run by Heather Kaplan. So um, yeah, 2019 was just a really incredible year of connection um, that wasn't going, it wasn't my intentional word for the year, but I think in reflection, that's the word that really comes to mind, um, both connection with other people, um, reconnecting also with my own yoga practice, uh, you know, running uh, an amazing retreat with Diane Bondi who is uh, one of the I would say world leaders in weight inclusive yoga teaching I have learned so much from her as a as a teacher and also as a person who has practiced it who does still practice yoga very regularly myself very um, keen to learn more about trauma-informed and, and weight inclusive and body inclusive yoga um, and yoga practice and how we can use the practices that we have on the mat to bring our intentions out into the world and do great work for people who are living in all different bodies, not only different size bodies, but different um, ages, abilities, genders, um, sexual orientations, and all the different ways that we have a body in this world. So, wow, that was a little bit longer than I expected, but, <laughs> but 2020 is shaping up to be wow, perhaps another incredible year. I, I really hope, and I have no doubt at all that, again, it's not going to be another um, year where everything goes to plan. And in fact, that would be uh, probably not the way, definitely not the way life is, but definitely not, not what I expect, nor probably is, is any good for, for us either, that everything kind of goes to plan. And I mean, it's nice on one hand, but on the other hand, um, you know, having having regular challenges and, and uh, you know, leaning into our edges is, is how we learn and grow. So with that in mind, um, there's going to be stacks of really great announcements, including um, body image workshops with Marcy Evans and myself. There's going to be a couple of workshops with Evelyn Triboli, and then one very, very special 
special day retreat with Christy Harrison here in Melbourne uh, at a beautiful location called Montsalvat, which is a um, an old artist's colony or venue. I'm not sure what you would call it, but it's a beautiful, beautiful venue um, that we'll be hosting our um, day retreat here in Melbourne. So with that in mind, um, keep an eye on the website at www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. So these events are for dietitians and health professionals. All professionals are welcome. Um, so the, the focus is really going to be on professional practice. So please get in touch if if you have any questions about any events or workshops or training, whether it's online or live coming up. Um, yeah, so as you can hear, I'm super excited about 2020, what's, what's coming up. Um, so today I wanted to bring you uh, an amazing episode with a wonderful colleague of mine who actually I was so lucky to connect with a couple of times this year. And um, the colleague I'm specifically referring to is my guest, Jenna Hollenstein. So Jenna is a registered dietitian from uh, New York City and she really specializes in um, in helping people struggling with chronic dieting, disordered eating and eating disorders. So Jenna is, a, Jenna is really a specialist in intuitive eating and especially in mindful te- mindfulness techniques and meditations, which she aims to help her clients move towards greater peace, health and wellness. So um, Jenna is also a certified dietitian nutritionist in New York State. And in 2018, Jenna joined the board of the Center for Mindful Eating, which is an organization that I've had quite a bit to do with over, over the years. Um, Jenna teaches, uh, teaches mindfulness. Um, so she is actually a qualified mindfulness teacher, which makes a big difference when you're, when you're actually you know, um, wondering who to learn mindfulness from. Uh, she's been featured in US News and World Report, Health, Mindful, Vogue, ooh, ah, L, Glamour and Fox News. Jenna is also the author of Understanding Dietary Supplements and her fabulous third book, Eat to Love, A Mindful Guide to Transforming Your Relationship with Food, Body and Life was published in January 2019. So you'll hear us talk a little bit about Eat to Love on the podcast. And honestly, I cannot recommend it enough. It's really quite different. What it looks at is it it, it breaks down what's called the parameters. Um, And I'm not going to give away too much of it, but it's a really different way to look at how we can start to disentangle ourselves of the dominant stories that we have around uh, food eating and bodies, whether that comes from a cultural perspective or whether it comes from a more internalized stories perspective um, and how we can start to reconnect with ways in which we can care for ourselves through through genuine nourishment. I just, I thought the book was absolutely beautiful. It's really quite different to a lot of other books out there. I can guarantee that is completely weight inclusive and health at every size friendly. There's not a bit of weight stigma in there. Um, Jenna is extremely dedicated to, to weight inclusive practice. And this is something that really comes through in her, um, in her work and in her practice. So today, um, in, a, in this podcast, we really dug down in observing the kind of the, the shifting mood and the changes, the evolution that is going on in um, in dietetic practice at the moment. And um, uh, we kind of observe how we've noticed. Um, so Jenna's been a dietitian for about 20 years, as have I. And we both share here what we've observed over that time in terms of um, the, the witnessing of the evolution of dietetic practice and how so many more dietitians now are becoming interested in intuitive eating and other non-diet approaches um, under, the, under the broader umbrella of health at every size and weight-inclusive practice. So yeah, we have a little bit of a, a chin wag about that. We also talk about compassion. This is something that Jenna is extremely knowledgeable in. And so we talk about what compassion is and what it isn't um, and how we can kind of move towards a more compassionate uh, presence both as a practitioner and also um, as a person as well. So there's lots of um, lots of richness here. And, um, and you'll, you'll hear here uh, Jenna also talk about her new meditation instructor course that is just for dietitians, which she ran with her uh, with her teacher Susan Piver. So this is called the Open Heart Project Meditation Instructor Training. Um, all the links are in the um, are in the show notes. I'd really encourage you to to um, be looking at that. Uh, uh, I also mentioned that Jenna has been interviewed on a couple of other pod, other podcasts, and I would really encourage you to go and listen to those to get a bit of an a bit more in depth. 
um, information on on Jenna's background and what what has brought her to the place that she is now. Um, if you would like to learn from Jenna, you can easily find her um, via her website, um, which is all in the they're all in the show notes there that you can easily click. Um, then and there to find Jenna. So let's uh, grab our coffee, grab our tea, grab our glass of champagne, if that is the time of day that is appropriate for you, wherever you are in the world. And let's go listen to my excellent conversation with Jenna Hollenstein. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Jenna, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Thank you so much. So we've known each other now for um, several years or more. And tell us a little bit about your life in New York City. Um, my life in New York City is overstimulating and um, exciting and, and sort of engaged. I, I do love the, the, the energy of the city and try to balance that with its cumulative effects on my nervous system over time by exposing myself to more trees occasionally. Um, but it's, it's a nice energy being in the, in the city as, as you're familiar with it being here and um, just the observing so many different people and hearing all the different languages and all the exposure to all the different foods. It's really kind of a, a haven for those of us who are curious about other people and what makes them tick. Absolutely. It's a, it really is an epidemiological melting pot in so many ways. It is. It's like, it's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like looking at people's faces, looking at how they behave, how they interact with one another, you know, different customs, different holidays that they celebrate. I mean, it's, and it all comes back to food. I mean, obviously, as we believe, um, so <laughs> just the exposure to all those different smells and, um, you know, different ingredients and ways of approaching food is just fascinating. Yeah, there, there, there really is no other city like New York where you could go, uh, you could walk, say, 10 blocks. And you, if you had the wherewithal, you know, the time, the resources, etc., you could enjoy 10 different cuisines in five blocks. Easily, easily, mm-hmm. easily, yeah you know, that's, that's pretty irreplaceable. <laughs> and, and you can eat them well. Yes. Right. It's not like, it's not like the Chinese takeout place in the little town in Sicily where I go to visit my partner's family. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> no, it's, it's homemade and it's made with a lot of passion and love. Yes. Yes. Mm. And like people who want to share their culture with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was so my experience there where there are, you know, tiny little shops with multi-generational families living, you know, in the, in the house in the back and um, yeah, lots of love in the food and it, and you could taste it definitely. Totally. Totally. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing. So you've had an, a really interesting year in so many ways. We were we were just chatting before we before we started, and one thing I particularly wanted to ask you about was was Fancy, which is the annual big um, dietetics and nutrition expo conference yeah, type of yeah. thing. So, for those people who aren't familiar with Fancy, can you describe what it's like? Because I've never been to one myself, and I don't. I wouldn't quite know whether to be excited or scared or somewhere in between. So. Yeah, somewhere in between, I think, it, particularly if you're in the, the haze intuitive eating side of things, because traditionally it has been very conventional in its focus. Um, years ago, I went to my first Fancy in 1997. It was in Boston, and it was my first year in grad school. And because we were students and it was, we didn't have to travel, we went. And um, there was very, very little that I would even consider worthwhile today. Um, And then more recently, I went back in 2013, where I met Evelyn Triboli actually for the first time and attended some um, behavioral health nutrition uh, sessions and sort of was starting to find my people. It's, I mean, you can think of it as like the Super Bowl for American dietitians, Ooh, right? Yikes, and like yeah. some, of the, <laughs> some of the local international people will come too. There were a number of people from Canada and Mexico and other places. Um, this year, though, what, there was a significantly different presence in terms of intuitive eating, 
um, and health at every size awareness. And one of the highlights, you know, for a lot of us was the session with Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli on the same stage, which I didn't realize was the first time they'd actually spoken together on like a, uh, a national stage. Oh, wow. And they were talking about the science and practice of intuitive eating. And the room was packed not a seat open. And there were at least seven or eight rows of people sitting down in the back of the room. I saw that photo. It was quite poignant. Amazing. It was amazing. And to when um, Rebecca Scritchfield, who was moderating the conversation, asked people to raise their hands if their lives had been changed by intuitive eating. I can't even imagine what it was like for Evelyn Louise to be looking out at the audience and see all those hands up in the air. Because it has been... I mean, they are to eating what John Kabat-Zinn is to mindfulness, you know, in the West. And so it's been a long time coming. It's not the new thing, right? As we all know on the inside, but, you know, in a lot of ways, we're at a tipping point. So that was palpable there. That's, yeah, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? So what's your observation of this tipping point? Like, what is, yeah. what are we tipping away from? And then what are we tipping towards just right. in, in your observation? I think we're tipping away from the idea that we can overpower our bodies with the mind, you know, the mind over matter type thing. And that the mind actually should be used in a different way, <laughs> like mindfulness. <laughs> um, I noticed a lot of students really feeling and and people early in their careers so that they're working for other people really feeling distress and conflict because what they're being taught does not include health at every size and intuitive eating or what they're being asked to practice is not aligned with health health at every size or intuitive eating and so they find themselves in this really difficult position of just hungering for more exposure and um evidence to basically build the case that this should be part of their curriculum, that this should be part of the practice. This should be part of what they're doing when they're working with patients with diabetes or, you know, renal disease or cardiovascular disease or um, in pregnancy or post-pregnancy, you know? So there's this real awareness, but this also this like really distressing cognitive dissonance for them. And I wonder if it's not only, if this doesn't only exist individually as well, but also more broadly collectively for us in our I think so. I think so. I mean, I often say that I live in a bubble because so many of the people that I relate to on like a day-to-day basis are so woke to this, you know, way of being with themselves and, you know, in the world. And um, I'm surprised sometimes when I encounter people who are shocked by it. And I also love encountering people who are shocked by it because it can be such a relief, you know, to kind of find out that there's this other way. You don't have to keep banging your head against this wall. Um, It's incredibly humane. The word humane keeps coming up for me. And I'm struck by the traditional dietetics practice in terms of weight manipulation and weight, you know, normative practice as being inhumane in part because we've known for so long that it doesn't work and it's incredibly unscientific to insist that there must be a way for it to work when all the evidence points in the opposite direction does that make sense it makes absolute sense and what happens for us in the meantime is it leaves us feeling as you say in conflict and in somewhat a state of helplessness as well Yeah, right. And so a lot of those students and early clinicians are wondering, like, what can I do? And so working with that sense of helplessness and trying to figure out, like, what small steps, or like they say in some Buddhist, um, like in one of those Lojong slogans, what seeds can Mm -hmm. we plant? Like, what are the tiniest little things that we could do that would actually start to um, accumulate and start pushing other places and other um, <clears throat> situations toward a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I was heartened by that. I was really heartened by that because honestly, when I was a student, an undergrad and a graduate student, I didn't know enough to seek this out. And they do. 
So, you know, flash mm-hmm. forward 20 years, that was 20 years ago for me. Plus, <laughs> you know, flash forward 20 years, I think we're going to be in a completely different situation. It is really, it's really interesting to, to reflect on the last 20 years. I'm in exactly that same career bracket as you, Jenna. And to recall the first moment that I even saw the stages of change model. So Di Clemente and Prochaska, the classic just stages of change model. I think I'd been graduated for well over a year before I even saw that. And it wasn't, it was then I distinctly remember, I even remember where I was. I was in a, a major public teaching hospital it was a, a free lecture being given by a uh, behavioural change psychologist. Um, and I thought, oh, well, this might be fun or interesting or something. So yeah. I went along and literally I was like, oh, that's, oh, this is why people find behaviour change hard. And of course, the human reaction is to not torn, turn towards ourselves with kindness and understanding, but to be like, ah, you didn't know this and this is all your fault and why didn't you know this and this is what you've been doing to all these people and da 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 da, da. Mm-hmm. And now I know better and I know how to kind of be a little bit more responsive and, and warm towards mine and other people's experience in, in, in these very human moments. Um, but I, I completely agree. I think that, you know, fast forward, 20 more years and uh and the the landscape of of our profession and hopefully more broadly culturally about how we how we regard bodies i have hope that we'll be in a in a different place yeah and even just your description of your own relationship with yourself when you were exposed to like a different framework raises that question for me of like Mm self-compassion and the importance of self-compassion for us as clinicians, as well as for the people that we work with, you know, Um, because I was thinking as you were telling that story about the people who even see themselves and if they start to understand the stages of change, what would be their initial Mm -hmm. reaction? And I imagine a lot of it is like, why aren't I there? Why Mm -hmm. am I not the next Mm -hmm. person? Why am I not further ahead? Mm -hmm. You know, and having that difficulty of just being with themselves where they are, how they are, and not trying to change that with some form of self-aggression. We're so, we're so programmed to try to change ourselves through self-aggression. Yes. And it's, it's so backwards. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes. It just never seems to work out that way. Mm-mm. No, it's it's not only cultural conditioning, but then also uh, I think it gets really much more deeply rooted through our training and then through our career progression. Yeah. That if you're if you're not getting quote unquote results or quote unquote outcomes, whatever that means to to your work or your workplace or you know your management, whatever it is, yeah. that you're doing something wrong. Right. Or, or worse, your client is doing something wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot mm-hmm. of confusion around it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found supervision to be incredibly helpful with that, to have that sort of reflection and also have that reminder of how much we don't know and how much is out of our control. Totally. Um, and again, it's, it encourages us to kind of be with ourselves in the process wherever we are mm-hmm. and to not you know, turn that self-aggression on ourselves the same way we're asking our clients not to be self-aggressive, to offer themselves, to extend themselves that kindness of compassion. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's so true. So I'm I'm super curious to ask you, Jenna, as somebody who who has been a long-term mindfulness practitioner and now mindfulness teacher, your beautiful book, Eat to Love, is, is such a it's an absolutely stunning uh, reflection on um, on Buddhist practices and um, and mindfulness and, and compassion and food and, and everything. I highly, highly, highly recommend it to anybody looking for a, a different perspective. I guess it's it's not a nutrition book, it's not just a mindfulness book. It's it's very unique. So congratulations! I think it's just it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm, it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful book. Um, 
I'm so curious to ask you about, you know, how we experience compassion, and most notably self-compassion, because um, I think one of the one of the um, misconceptions about self-compassion is it's this it it just has this kind of gentle, uh, soft. Um, almost a, a quiet, tender nature to it, which is not untrue. It does as well. And also uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what's the full picture of self-compassion? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I always go back to Kristen Neff's sort of what it is and what it isn't to remind myself, to help my clients kind of understand what is meant by self-compassion because she addresses those, you know, most common myths and things like that. When, when you think about like the three qualities that she's characterized as self-compassion, the kindness one, you know, does have elements of that gentleness and softness, but it also, there is this kind of radical element to it, right? Because we are, just programmed to motivate ourselves through self-aggression. The idea of extending kindness is radical. There's something like very sharp and cutting about that. Um, when you think about the idea of common humanity versus isolation, Again, there's a gentleness to like opening yourself to the possibility that you're not the only person who suffers in this way. And yet you're also kind of like popping this bubble and opening your heart to the fact that so many people suffer, right? That's gut-wrenching when you think about, can you imagine if others suffer as much as you do with this? Mm -hmm. It's almost easier in some ways to not think about that. Mm -hmm. So there's something kind of fierce about opening yourself to understand, to try to even conceive of the fact, just even take the example of like body image issues. Imagine you're not the only one that suffers. All those people like that I see walking around in New York City, a lot of those people are suffering consciously or unconsciously with this. And it, it, it kind of cracks you open. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there's something sharp about that too, mm -hmm. you know, and then mindfulness versus over-identification, this idea of constantly coming back to what is really happening. There's something very precise about that. That's not loosey-goosey, you know, mindfulness is all about like presence and it's all good kind of a thing. That is not about that. That's about like when it's, when you are experiencing pain, to let yourself experience pain, mm -hmm. to not make it more than it is or less than it is, right? It's not spiritual bypassing. It's not positive vibes only, gag, right? It's, there's a fierceness to this. There's like this raw honesty and this pure perception mm -hmm. of it. So, you know, there's... I, all those qualities that you described earlier that is, are sort of attributed to self-compassion remind me of like feminine qualities. I mm. think that what we really need to appreciate is the balance of feminine and masculine qualities mm. to mm. this. Because while there is a softness, a gentleness, a, um, a warmth to it, there's also this kind of like ice cold, yes. brutal honesty. Mm -hmm about it not in a harmful not in an aggressive way but in a clear seeing way and that's kind of fascinating to me because like I think a lot of what's going on in the world right now is an imbalance of the feminine and the masculine and <clears throat> did you ever read the book by Lama Sultram Alioni uh, Wisdom Rising no but it sounds like I need to it's very interesting because she she makes this case that the the feminine kind of wisdom is rising because it needs to balance out. We don't need to obliterate the masculine energy. No. We need to embrace both of them. They need to both occupy places of value. Yes. You know, and I think that's true of self-compassion. I think that's, of, that's true of how we relate to ourselves. That's true of each one of us as individuals, you know, this balance that's different for everybody of the masculine and the feminine. Yes, that exists within each of us. Yeah.
so I'm so curious to ask you, Jenna, you know, um, as you were speaking through the elements of self-compassion and then our previous, the previous section of our, of our conversation really being about this, this tipping point, this change that we're noticing culturally, notably within our profession. So I'm curious to ask you a, a bit about how can we embrace some of the elements of self-compassion both for ourselves and for our colleagues as we're going, as we're going through this shift, because a lot of this yeah. plays out in social media and a lot of yeah. it plays out in online spaces. Um, yeah. And I'm so, I'm so curious as to your thoughts as to how can we navigate this in a way that ultimately really helps us um, broaden and deepen our uh, the compassion that we can have for each other, for ourselves, for our clients, so that we can actually do the most good in the world. Yeah. Well, I think we can be conscious of our own evolution in our understanding of, of the truth, right? What we know to be the truth. Um, <clears throat> some of the people, some of the professionals that I respect the most have gone through a palpable, very clearly significant evolution, very publicly, right? And so people like Michelle May, people like Evelyn and Elise, as they describe the evolution of their language and concepts in through the first, second, third, and now fourth edition of Intuitive Eating. Um, someone like um, Melissa Toller, who is a writer and a body justice advocate who has talked publicly about her own evolution of her understanding of the truth. And so seeing that there's a vulnerability to doing that in public, you know, mm -hmm. to having like these meta conversations yes. about what is happening as it's happening. And it also encourages people to be similarly vulnerable to do their homework right? Not, as, not relying on other people to do their emotional labor or to do the work for them, but to also engage with others who are maybe at a different stage in their evolution. I think that helps, that helps me have compassion for myself when I get it wrong and maybe I get called out or called in, you know? Um, that helps me have compassion for other people when they spin something just so, when they co-opt some of these concepts, in my view, for the wrong reasons. I understand because I see, I see us all, I say this to my clients all the time, whatever we do, no matter how dysfunctional, it's just an attempt to feel okay. Yes. Just an attempt to feel safe. So it makes sense when you think about the distortions and the manipulations that we do even, because there is some underlying belief that this will help us feel safe or okay. Yes. You know, so that, that helps me. You know, and it's yes. not that I'm like, you know, off mic going, what the hell, you know, kind of crazy, you know, but, but really when it comes down to it, I can see myself in everybody's situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally like karmically, whenever I find myself sort of like judging someone for doing something like five minutes later, I catch myself doing the same freaking thing. <laughs> yes. And so that reminds me. Whenever I notice myself being judgmental, which is mm -hmm. human, we're the little judgment machines, right? That's what we do. It also reminds me like, okay, you're being judgmental. That can also mean that you're feeling threatened. And it's likely that you have been in the same situation and done the same thing or offended in the same way. So just, just saying it, you know, just opening that possibility up. Yes. I particularly loved your point when you said that we just want to feel safe and we want to feel like we belong. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's part of why that's a big part of why I wrote the book was to draw the line between all the things that we do around food and body and what, if you really like excavate and peel away all the layers right down to like that raw center the things that we're seeking are essentially the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We want to feel safe. We want to be loved. We want to be visible. We want to be included. Right? We've been programmed to think that 
certain changes to ourselves will promise those other things that we want. Yes. Right. And so we internalize them. We project them on ourselves. We project them on other people, but we don't often look directly at those underlying motivations. Those very human things that we've become kind of alienated from. Yes. You know? Yes. And your point around that, that can really help us to, uh, cultivate compassion for others as as they're learning as well just to remember that there's there's potentially going to be a sense of you know if, if somebody for example is doubling down on something it that's simply a, a I would say more a reaction than a response but perhaps a re reaction to yeah. feeling threatened yeah. and to Absolutely. see the human in that no I yeah I think that just acknowledging the, the lack of separation between us. Yes. You know, like, yeah, we are individuals. We are all on our own little lonely path. And yet there's something that's not separate. Yes. Right? This whole idea of interdependence or like mm -hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about interbeing. You know, there's no separation. That's it. And so my teacher, Susan Piver, will say, you know, you can hate people. You can rail against them. What you can't do is think you're any different than them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which that helps me too. That's like, oh yeah. Yeah. The, the awkward truth. Yeah. You're right. Mm -hmm. the that's the other inconvenient truth. Very inconvenient. It's like, oh, if, if I had those same causes and conditions kind of, fueling me on this trajectory, I probably would end up in the same situation. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to accept. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a hard, that's a hard feeling to allow yourself to have. Mm -hmm. And to follow on from this section of our conversation, what this, I want to put something out there. What understanding and acknowledging this doesn't mean is that we necessarily have to kind of sit back and do nothing and, you know, say, oh, that's okay. That's kind of where you're at. Because what you spoke about before is that there can be a fierceness, a sharpness, a sense of, um, I mean, in, in, I guess in, in life, we might call that boundaries and we might call it yeah. uh, opportunities for learning or whatever, whatever that is. So, you know, how can this show up for us? Well, and, um, I love the term, I think it was originated, or it, be, it became popularized by Chogun Trungpa, <clears throat> the Ch Tibetan meditation master Chogun Trungpa. He talked about idiot compassion and the difference <laughs> yeah. between compassion and idiot compassion. And you might think about compassion as all the things that we talked about and idiot compassion as sort of like somehow not engaging directly with the situation as it is. And sort of taking the late the path of least resistance, enabling, you know. And so what you're talking about, like when somebody is sadly out of line, you can have compassion for them, right? And hold that in one hand, and you can have that kind of fierce cutting through quality of you need to understand that what you're saying is offensive to me, to other people. And I understand that it comes from a place of ignorance, but I cannot be silent about it, for example. Mm -hmm. So, and I think there's compassion in the ability to have both of those things coexist because they feel like they should conflict, but they don't. No. They're, no. they're like two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And arguably the hardest to engage in an act. Yes. Yeah. We, we love, we love certainties. We love black and white situations, right? We don't like complexities, but what are we but walking complexities? We never have one feeling at mm. once, mm -hmm. right? We have a multitude of feelings. We have a multitude of conflicting emotions at once. You know, there's, there's so much to our experience. We, we have such a potential for expansiveness. And yet, and this is not surprising, this is like one of the three... Um, human survival strategies they talk about in Buddha's brain, we like to put little things in boxes, right? Because that helps us understand them. That helps us feel like 
we're mastering a situation. We don't like uncertainty and unknown, right? And so if we can oversimplify something and put it in a jar and put the lid on and put it on the shelf, we're happy. Mm -hmm. But that's not the truth. That's not the, that's not the reality. It also, it also means that we might get drawn into the narrative of making someone else wrong and therefore I am right. Right. and the temporary relief that that offers us. Yeah. Hmm. Right. And isn't that just our own safety seeking? Too? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear a lot about right and wrong. Cause I have a four year old. Oh yes. The richest oh. teachers of all are like John Kabat-Zinn says little Zen masters parachuted into our lives for 18 years. Now it's like 26 or 37. Right. <laughs> the boomerang generation. Yes. Oh my God. The little Zen master in the, in the tantrum, I, I'm not quite seeing, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. It's amazing. But they my, force us to face. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. My child is a Zen master. My child is a Zen master. My child is a Zen master. <laughs> tattoo it on your forehead. Right, so you exactly. It, you know, whenever you need it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, we all need a little more Zen master within ourselves as well, perhaps. <laughs> so there we go. Well, I mean, there's nothing more like meditation and mindfulness in everyday life than parenthood. Right. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, that relationship with our bodies. Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the original long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? I love thinking about our relationship with our body in the form of a relationship. It's so rich. About in your body image workshop. Right. You guys talked about that. It's like, it's mm. like, you know, sometimes you are like, it's working, you're, you know, jiving. Yes. Yeah. And then other times it's like strangers or enemies. Right. Work, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, what if we could think of it that way? That, I mean, that was, that was a, that was a moment. That was a before and after moment for me, you know, like yeah. before I heard that from you and Marcy, I was like, I, it just had never occurred to me after it. I was like, oh yeah. You know, mm -hmm. to think about, to think about the relationship with my body as the, the complexity of a long-term relationship as I do with like with my partner which I, you know, have accepted at this point, it's just not going to be easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. something. That is something. Yes. A absolutely. And, and especially the, the aging body, the changing body. The injured body. The injured body. The unwell the body. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a process, isn't it? And, and what is, what is, uh, I was going to say what is demanded of us. Eh, what is asked of us is really a lot, isn't it? Yeah. It's, you know, we're, we're really asked to be with ourselves and our changing experiences in ways that often we're not prepared for. Well, because we're not prepared because we have attachments, right? Right. Cause we want things to stay the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because in a way, it is asking a lot of us mm -hmm. to deal with, you know, constant change. And in, a, in another way, all that's really asked of us is to be with ourselves as we are right now. Right. But that requires letting go constantly of what happened in the past and what may or may not happen in the future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, I say to people all the time, you know, it's, this is the perfect time to be doing what you're doing. Because the sooner you can connect with this body that is constantly changing, the better for you. Because that is going to continue. Yes. Until it doesn't anymore. You know? And there's something very poignant about that. There is. Something it, very poignant about that. It really hits to the center of our experience on Earth. Yeah. Right. Yeah, our short time. Mm -hmm. In our what skin. Right. Yeah. So to round off this, this conversation, I, I know that you have a very rich mindfulness practice. And so to, to link to what we were just talking about just now, how has your own practice helped you with, 
with the notion of acceptance. I mean, it's very kind of a, it's a, it's a big topic and we could talk yeah. about this for another hour, but you know, how has your own practice assisted you with, with acceptance? I think of it as another long-term relationship, mm-hmm. you know, that's constantly changing. I realized at one point I had this sort of attachment to the time in my life when I could sit for 20 minutes every morning and I didn't have, I had a partner, but we weren't living in the same city. I didn't have a kid. I had a couple of cats that would kind of get in the way sometimes, you know, but I basically had to take care of myself. And so it was fairly easy to maintain that consistency. And then, you know, everything kind of hit the fan about four years ago. And so my practice has been about maintaining a connection, you know, like, could I, what could I do to give myself the support that would allow myself to continue a meditation and a mindfulness practice? How could I recognize the off the cushion practice? How could I recognize the practice that is inherent in being a mother? How could I recognize the practice that's inherent in being a clinician? Yes. You know, because it feeds on one another, the actual sitting practice and the capacity to show up in your life. And so it's, it's like the body. It's a constantly, you know, degenerating and, and regenerating type of process. You know, it's like, it's like bone with the osteoclasts and the osteoblasts. Like it's never static. Mm -hmm. I'm always very wary when I get into a groove, you know, cause I'm like, that's not going to last. Come on. You know, something's going to happen. And so it's kind of like, okay, I see myself seeking safety through consistency or through feeling like longer practice is better. And when something inevitably does change, I'm like, oh yeah, this, <laughs> I, I see this is going to happen <laughs> right there. I see you. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. Exactly. I've been <laughs> expecting you. <laughs> so uh, that's been it. I mean, part of it too is, I, I don't know if you feel this way, Fiona, but like having this as part of what I offer to people incorporates the practice into the work I do. You know, so I'm touching other people's practice every day and that feeds my practice. Yes. You know? If I teach other clinicians how to teach meditation to their clients, Mm -hmm. there's an interaction there that's feeding our respective practices. Absolutely. Yeah. And then their interaction with their people builds something. There's like this branching out effect. I love it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yes. I, I really, I really feel that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Because it maintains it in that like front of mind. It's all about maintaining the connection with it, right? Yes, yes, yes. And also yes. being self-compassionate, right? Like Susan says, my teacher, Susan Piver, she says, you know, if you miss a day, if you miss a week, you miss a month, you miss a year, you can feel bad about it for nine seconds. <laughs> you got to cut that shit out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that is brilliant. Well, there's no point in, you know, getting out the the whip because it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not only ineffective, it's harmful and deepens those wounds that we're carrying as humans anyway. And it actually creates barriers to mm-hmm. doing the thing that would help you feel more yourself, more present when, when you could possibly do it. Right. Right. Again, it's that self-aggression versus the self-compassion. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jenna, would you mind just, before we finish up, would you mind just mentioning the meditation, uh, the way that you teach meditation to other clinicians, please? Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm sure that there are people listening who might like to access that, that those teachings. Sure. I, I teach a, uh, I co-teach a course with my teacher, Susan Piver. Um, we've taught it for the last four years. We've taught it twice a year. And next year we decided to only offer it once a year. So um, it's open to healthcare providers, um, yoga teachers, teachers, anybody who wants to work with other people or offer meditation to the people that they work with. Um, And then I have sort of in the works um, a a modified version of this curriculum for non-diet dietitians. 
that I'm hoping to offer toward the end of next year or the beginning of 2021. Oh, because amazing. I see it's like my mission to get more dietitians using mm -hmm. this technique, both for themselves. I mean, if you see the research on like healthcare providers and their own practice of meditation and mindfulness and the effects on their, um, their self-compassion, their focus, their, um, you know, tendency toward burnout, their patient reviews and things like that. It's so positive. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and I think dietitians in particular, particularly as we continue this, this shift toward the non-diet approach, dietitians are in such a, a potentially um, powerful position to help people connect or reconnect with that, in, that intelligence that they already possess, both in terms of their lives in general, which is the Buddhist view that we have this intelligence that's innate, and in terms of eating and moving and being in your body, which is the underlying belief in, you know, health at every size and intuitive eating. So these are such, these are such compatible approaches to being in a human body. Yeah. I just, I love the idea that you're turning, going to be turning it into a course, which is going to be accessible for people no matter where you are in the world. Well, I'm, exactly. I'm very excited and congratulations. It's amazing. Thanks. Thanks. I'm yeah, I'm excited too, because I think I think this is it's an obvious next step for us. Definitely. As a profession. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If we're going to be truly client centered and and to be able to take care of ourselves at the same time, I mean we're no good if we burn out, right? Totally. So this these practices yeah. are amazing for our longevity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Jenna, thank you so much for your generosity, your wisdom, and what you've shared with us today. I just, I just really appreciate you being in the world, and uh, you. I, I feel so, so lucky. We, we happen to, you know, be in the world at the same time, moving in the same circles. Otherwise, like we would know each other. I know it's incredibly know. It's, amazing. It is very fortunate. Mm -hmm. I wish that you weren't on the other end of the globe, but I'll take it for what it is. I'll take it as it is. <laughs> right, absolutely, and thank you, Internet. For, for, yes. for, for the gift that is this, as yeah. opposed to all the other gifts, which are less helpful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks yeah. for the important clarification. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again, Jenna. I just really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. And um, I really look forward to connecting with you again soon. My pleasure. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.